Welcome to the Momenta Partners Uncommon Perspectives podcast series. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner. In this series, we bring you some of the most insightful and creative thinkers, authors, and practitioners who share their experiences and views across a range of topics that have relevance, not just for business, but for life as well. We hope you enjoy their insights. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. And with us today is an old friend and a very special guest, Rich Steenan, who's an industry analyst and author of a new book, uh, Secure Cloud Transformation. Now, a little bit of context. I've known Rich for for many years uh, throughout his, his, uh, his experience uh, working for, for different technology companies, uh, being a, um, an outspoken and uh, really insightful industry analyst for um, for one of the large industry uh, industry firms. Uh, he's very well known in the information security space, and uh, I thought it was uh, you know quite coincidentally he has uh, just published a book on secure cloud transformation. At the time that uh, you know we've been focusing a lot on digital transformation. Uh, and I thought this was a perfect opportunity to, to, to bring him on and have him, have him share some of the insights from the book. Rich, it's, it's great to have you on the, on the podcast. Great to talk to you again, Ed. Great. Well, first, let's, let's start with a bit of context. If you could share for, uh, for our listeners, just to share a bit of your background and, and what had really, what's really brought you to, to where you are and, and what, ended up being the impetus for your decision to write this book. Sure. So I've been in IT security since 1995. And that was, you know, with a startup in the managed security service space that eventually ended up uh, being the basis of IBM's managed security today. And then I did a gig as a, a you know, ethical hacker, I guess we call them, at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and that was really my introduction to a large enterprise because I did big railroads and banks around the U.S. Um, but then I got recruited by Gartner as an industry analyst back in the early days. Um, I was the second industry analyst covering uh, security at Gartner. And, you know, obviously the, the, the entire space grew dramatically in the four years I was there. And then I think you and I met when I had... Um, joined a little company called Webroot Software in 2005 and lasted maybe two years there before I had the itch to get back on the podium and have more people listen to what I had to say. So I started my own firm. Uh, so I've pretty much been an independent industry analyst since then with a few timeouts to take roles at companies like Fortinet and most recently at a company called Blanco Technology Group that does secure data erasure. Um, so as I came out of Blanco, uh, two years ago, I was, I was looking at, you know, the changes that were happening in the industry. Um, and I, you know, I learn about new technologies through their security impl implications. So, you know, you know, I probably don't pay much attention to drones or robots until they start having attacks against them. And then I started digging into it and I started following the companies uh, led by, you know, usually very smart people who recognize the problem and come up with solutions. So I follow technology through uh, its adaption and visibility in the security spectrum. So by two or three years ago, there were dozens of cloud security solutions and most of them were uh, point products that tried to replicate what we had in our data centers and headquarters and et cetera. And they would rebuild them in virtual instances and then figure out the wiring and the reporting so that they were valuable additions to your suite of, of security products. But um, I, when I started talking to CIOs and CTOs, I realized, you know, there's a much, much bigger picture here. And the cloud is uh, transformative to their businesses. And a security layer on top of it is going to be transformative 
to the entire enterprise security stack. And it's going to have some implications for the legacy members that, you know, are my friends I've been following for decades. Um, and it's really, really hard to make that transition from being a, you know, big iron appliance vendor with the fastest firewall and, um, you know, the most throughput and the most connections per second, et cetera, to trying to do all that in the cloud. You can't do it with just virtualizing this stuff. So I interviewed, uh, um, I actually interviewed 18 CIOs, CTOs, uh, 16 of them made it into the book and their stories to me were fascinating. And they're, they're the whole value to the book. Obviously I, I coach the book and put it inside a story arc that takes us from the transition, you know, to applications in the cloud, to the network transformation that has to occur for that to, to work properly. Um, to learning and security on top of that. So that's the story arc. But then these 16 contributors had their own stories. You know, how at Siemens or Schneider Electric um, or Fannie Mae, how and when they recognized that the cloud was transformative, uh, was something they had to do, and then how they either edged into it or a couple of them just stopped everything and said, we are a cloud-first company. So... That was kind of the the origin of the book and and the compilation of the book. Well, I think it's it's a your perspective is really it provides a uh, a, a great complement to a lot of the the conversations that we've been having with uh, with some other folks on this podcast where we've been really exploring the you know the business impact of of transformation. But I, I I'd like to go to some of the, the areas that you you've highlighted and. And drill in a bit in in the uh, in the book you've really framed the um, we'll call them the megatrends nicely and I, I think what uh, what's really helpful to to put the you know, the the security needs in perspective obviously is is to is really to start with the you know the, kind of the bigger the bigger trend and and one big point that you highlight is the uh, the importance and the implications of, of cloud application adoption. And I think a lot of people know that adopting, I mean, that when you move from, you know, on-premise to cloud, it, uh, it, there are you know, different uh, implications for the financial model. And of course, the, the mode of delivery is different. But, but how, you know, how is cloud adoption of cloud applications different and 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 why is it why is it important yeah it it brings me back to something i've observed over you know my 30 years in it um in that the the it department which when i started was called the mis department which literally was a bunch of offices down the hallway with a sign that said mis um they would resist all new technology right if you wanted to and they didn't know what to do when you wanted to bring a PC in and put it on your desk and write your own memos and not use their, you know, deck uh, all-in-one solution. Um, and I saw them resist the introduction of email. I saw them resist the introduction of internet connectivity. They resisted uh, Wi-Fi, you know, and those was always driven by people on the inside. And the same thing, of course, repeated itself with cloud, you know, the so-called shadow IT but even even IT department would eventually sanction um, getting rid of internal CRM and using Salesforce, for instance. Uh, or now, you know, getting rid of the heavy-duty HR platform you had and moving to an online version from Workday. Um, or maybe financials in NetSuite uh, for the smaller enterprises. And they saw that the costs were lower. The, uh, you know, there's, there's no engineering anymore. You know, it's what you see is what you get. And the providers of those platforms enhance them. You know, almost every week you're getting new features and capabilities. They listen to their big customers and they, you know, improve the program as they go. So it evolves. Um, and you pay, uh, you know, usually a per user per time frame budget. So you can quickly figure out if it's lower cost. And, uh, invariably it is. Um, so we got over... During the time frame that Salesforce grew to the monster company it is today, we got over the idea that our critical data was going to reside somewhere else, right? It's outside of our data center. 
um, we had to build in more sophisticated authentication means so only our salespeople can get access to their CRM. Um, and same with you know the uh, HR people are the only ones that have access to the health maintenance records or or the, the benefits records, etc. So we figured out all these aspects already. We've done heavy lifting. We've gotten over the fear of the cloud. Um, enough companies have evaluated uh, Salesforce's security that they're comfortable that it you know, meets all of their uh, requirements for whatever regulations and whatever industry they're in. Um, but now we start looking at the fact that you can start deciding for every application that you use to maintain you can find a, an alternative that's already delivered as a service. So software as a service is, is kind of the first step that organizations are taking. Now I'll you, take a breath. Oh, absolutely. No, and <laughs> I was I was going to say that, I mean, you you know, as you look at the processes around application transformation, there are a, a number of decisions that need to be made up front. And that's one of the, one of the topics and the themes that comes up uh, again and again in the book is that you you can either you know do you um, you know do you lift and shift or do you partly refactor the applications or do you or do you completely refactor uh, the, the applications and there are a lot of dimensions that are involved with that both both business uh, operational and organizational um, could you compare and contrast a bit you know some of the uh, some of the experiences that you've seen when you have uh, or traditional organizations that are, you know, that are taking that inventory of their applications and then, uh, you know, some of the criteria that need to come into place to successfully make the decision of what path to take. Yeah, I learned that, you know, the, the in general, they all went through the, the phase where everyone was enthused about moving to the cloud. But then they either made mistakes that made them pull back or wiser heads prevailed and they said, no, we've got to be methodical about this. So the recommendations out of several of the people I interviewed was, you know, step back, look at your applications, make that decision up front about which ones are, are easy to lift and shift. So in other words, they're already an internal web application, right? So it doesn't matter if you move it from the data center out to the cloud and hosted on Azure or, or Amazon or Google, um, but also prioritize them on, um, you know, the, the not only the total cost of maintaining and developing it, but and shifting it, but the uh, security, right? So it's do need another layer of security if you're going to have it hosted by a, a third party, in essence. Um, and then, you know, as you're doing that review of your applications of which, you know, there could be thousands in some of these organizations. Um, some of them are, you know, are used, you know, internally by just a small handful of people and they haven't had to touch it for a while. And the original software engineers are long gone. So you, you wouldn't even know where to start. Maybe put a lower priority on, on those. And then the really big investments you've made in a Siebel or a SAP, um, it might be a really long time frame before you decide to move those to cloud-hosted um, architectures. So I thought thought that was pretty wise. Uh, one organization I talked to um, just made the decision to, you know, what we're going to move everything to the cloud. We're going to shut down our data center, and they they did that on a weekend, and everything broke. Nothing worked, and they had to revert back to the data center and take a step back and come up with a you know two-year plan to make that mm -hmm. transition. So, so I think it's valuable that, that they got those lessons down uh, because, you know, you, you don't want to make this, uh, uh, you know, height, right? This just happens to be the way that it's going and there's long-term benefits for doing it. You've highlighted that Office 365 in itself is – uh, has has created an enormous amount of pressure on on traditional IT uh, organizations, and I thought this was you know, really a, a really interesting point to highlight. Just as really just a single application, and I, um, I I guess when I think about you know the move to ERP systems and business process transformation or or business 
process uh, <laughs> refactoring or re-engineering in the in the 90s. I mean, that was pretty significant. But uh, you know, why why is I Office 365 you know so different from other software as a service applications? And and what's what's unique about that? And and how has that informed some of the uh, some of the lessons that have come out in the book. Yeah, you know, my experience with Office 365 over the years was first, you know, as a security person, you know, I did everything in my power 10 years ago to get off of Windows as much as I could. So I switched to a Linux laptop and used, you know, early versions of uh, webmail. And, you know, if you use the the early Microsoft webmail solutions, you just said, this is not enterprise ready, right? It's, it's slow and cumbersome. Um, and, and a lot of it was that, that Microsoft, you know, didn't, they didn't do a, I guess they did a lift and shift, right? They just created plugins to net, the network in order to make, uh, uh, make that work. And then they had this transition period where they would do hosted exchange because hosting exchange was one of the most difficult things for an IT department to do. Um, you know, maintain your own server and, oh, oh, man, I had brothers in a small law firm and they had to hire somebody, you know, have a contract with somebody to come in every week and maintain their exchange server for them. So moving to 365 was a no-brainer when it became available. Three years ago, I attended... Um, a conference for the Informa- Information Governance Institute. There are about 60 people there, all CEGOs, Chief Information Governance Officers, you know, who are kind of a combination of a CIO and a privacy officer. Every single person who got on stage said their big IT project for the year, this was three years ago, was the move to Office 365. There was not one that wasn't making that move. And that really got my attention because that, if, if, that was, you know, relevant to or carried over to the rest of industry. This is the biggest move in IT in our history. Everybody doing that at once. And sure enough, you know, you have, um, Microsoft does report the numbers of uh, subscribers they have, and it's, you know, they're getting up to huge numbers for Office 365. So, talking to both Microsoft and groups like uh, Kelly Services, um, who's a staff augmentation company, um, they they started to make that move because Office 365 was where their desktop productivity tools were going to uh, reside, plus, you know, everything else. You get SharePoint and Yammer and Teams and uh, Office Dynamics. Um, all of this was given to you for a single price per customer per year or per user per year. So you watch them do that and people do it you know, rather quickly turn it on and get it up and running and then immediately discover all the problems with Office 365 from a networking standpoint. And I like to I like to say, you know, email is a killer app. Office 365 is a killer app that is going to kill your network uh, because just because of the way it evolved over time to what it is. It's, unlike uh, Salesforce, um, you have to have persistence with email, right? Because you're, you want to, and receive an email as soon as it comes in. So those connections have to stay up all the time. So everybody who's logged on has all these different TCP/IP protocols running at once. And if uh, if Microsoft makes a change in you know the IP addresses of where those servers are or the routes to them, uh, it can cause havoc for your operations because we all know without email, everybody just shuts down and goes to the water cooler. So one organization like Kelly Services saw, you know, including Office 365, up to 70% of their bandwidth was directed to the internet. And so they they eventually ended up doing throttling on Office 365 traffic. So it was only 50%, uh, you know, could max out at 50% of all their traffic. Wow. Um, And and the reason is, you know, if, if somebody... Um, comes in from a long business trip and plugs a computer into the corporate network, all of a sudden it's going to try and uh, back up everything to to uh, mm-hmm. you know, the shared drives. And if several people are doing that, it can really bog your network down and then that impacts the responsiveness of your emails. So you can't have that happening. So that's when they start looking at, well, how do we 
change our network infrastructure to accommodate all this traffic that's already going to the internet because the traditional network model since the time I've been uh, in the networking space when I started an ISP was to, as you had remote offices get online or uh, connect back to corporate headquarters, you would lease these expensive MPLS lines from your carrier. So, you know, back in in my day, they gave you a T1, you know, all 1.54 megabits of connectivity at the cost of thousands of dollars a month for any distance. And now those those lines are up to 10 to 20 megs each. uh, And, you know, they're just shared. They just go over the regular internet backbones anyways, but they're, They've got SLAs associated with them, so you get pretty reliable throughput. Um, but why take somebody in, you know, if you're headquartered in New York City and you've got an office in San Francisco, why are you hauling everybody's traffic all the way back to New York City before sending them back to the data centers in San Francisco where Salesforce resides? So that was when this uh, local internet breakout became a thing. And local internet breakout is very tied to so-called software-defined networking mm-hmm. uh, because you're making a decision on, on each connection, whether it goes back to headquarters or goes out to the internet. You do that with software-defined um, devices. And they're essentially routers, right? They just mm-hmm. have a little more control without the overhead of BGP, et cetera, to make it happen. And so we're finally seeing this, this shift that has been a long time coming to using the internet, which has you know, become fairly reliable for broadband internet, and it, it's cheaper to get two different uh, systems to go to the internet in each office location than it is to backhaul all that traffic. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you highlight, or one of the aspects of transformation that you highlight also that's quite important is the um, this concept of moving away from a hub-and-spoke topology to really a hybrid uh, a hybrid topology or, or, or hybrid networks. And uh, I, you know, looking at, of course, the increase in, in bi- bi-directional or multi- multilateral traffic uh, because of a system like Office 365, I could see that's clearly a catalyst. But, you know, how has this dynamic changed how businesses need to think about their their networking topology? Because that's, not necessarily something that I would think a lot of people have thought about much since they uh, really for for a couple of decades since they uh, since we were first building you know local area networks and then and then wide area networks and and then virtual networks. I mean, once you have your infrastructure, you, people have kind of uh, they've stuck with it for a while. And this is your uh, what you're what you're identifying here is a, is a much more profound shift that has strategic yeah. implications as well. Oh, yeah, completely. So in the simplest terms, if you think about it, the application transformation to the cloud, um, you can say your corporate data center is now the cloud, or in the near future, it will be. On the same side for network architectures, your corporate network is being replaced by the internet. And so if you had to create a large enterprise out of scratch, uh, from scratch today, you wouldn't build a single data center, you wouldn't host a single server, and you wouldn't lease a single line. You would just use the internet and host everything in the cloud. That's, you know, on a small scale, um, that's what I do for my little business. You know, I'm sitting out in my uh, writing shed in the garage, and if I've got something I need feedback on on an invoice or something, um, I don't go over any network other than the internet to send it to my wife who's in, in the house right now. And, you know, does make a couple trips out to the cloud and back to get it to her. Um, but it's, there's no maintenance. I don't have to do any work at all on my IT infrastructure and in a you know, large, you know, the future of where the enterprise is going, that's where I see it going. So of course there are steps along the way. And right now, uh, most of the organizations I talk to, um, are in a hybrid network mode, right? So all internet traffic, all, all traffic destined for the internet goes over broadband connections to the internet. Um, stuff that's going to the corporate data center is coming over the corporate network. But organizations like Kelly Services were able to significantly reduce 
their bandwidth charges for those MPLS circuits and use that savings for the refactoring of their application. Which is uh, a, a, a healthy dynamic, at least, in, in terms yeah. of, of managing cost. So the yeah. I mean it's a it's the first time I've I've heard people saying we're saving money, we're more secure, and end users are happier with the performance. Mm. And that that never happens. That, yeah, that's like uh that's almost uh yes, counter um almost it 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 does run counter or it's oxymoronic, I guess if one would one would say if, if one thinks about sure, the, yeah. you know, tech technology the the technology laws of um, growing complexity and and cost, but but yep. I think this yep. this brings us to the you know really the the meat of, of the the question and, and your expertise, which is how the transformation of applications or this shift of security uh, or shift of applications to the cloud and uh, the sh- the the evolution of the network topology, of course, has now changed the surface area of potential attack vectors for security and how this transformation is uh, needs to be thought about and addressed you know from the standpoint of uh, you know of, of a of a chief security officer and a you know and a, and and a company that wants to ensure uh, availability as well while observing all the appropriate uh, laws and and governance yep yeah and the you know as usual you know if IT's the last to jump on a uh, transformation uh, shift, you know, because it's generally driven by users and business dynamics. Um, the the CISO and the security team are the last to be brought in, um, and it, so it's usually, hey, we just did this. Can you look at it and make sure we did it securely? Um, so there's an opportunity, at least this time around. Most organizations now do have a chief information security officer um, to get her involved. Uh, at the start and look at the architectures required. And there's and there's two halves to uh, cloud security as I see it in, in this model. Um, the first half is how do we replace the controls we used to put on every end user about you know which websites they could go to. And this goes all the way back to uh, you know cash flow um, was the original uh, company that did this, um, not blue coat. And of course, WebSense did this, and our friends at, at WebRoot uh, eventually got into that and just got sold uh, because of their capabilities there. Um, and for the longest time, the solution was, look, we're going to put a really expensive server that's going to keep track of all the good URLs and block all the bad URLs. So we're going to log everything and, and make sure that people aren't wasting their time, but we're going to block access to... Uh, sporting sites and pornography sites and hate sites. That became a critical function for all enterprises. And most enterprises had something like that in their data center. So it, unfortunately, it you know, throttled user access a little bit. And it was difficult to maintain because there were some groups that needed access to uh, some of those uh, more nefarious sites. So it was a constant battle. Um, the UTM vendors figured out what to do with the distributed enterprise. You know, we're a retail operation. We've got a thousand stores. How do we provide that capability without backhauling everybody's traffic all the way to uh, to corporate to be filtered? And so the UTM vendors just added that one feature to a firewall and started selling it. And now we see Palo Alto Networks and Fortinet and SonicWall have capitalized on that you know, for the last decade. But what do you do about the mobile user? So the solution for mobile users was we're going to force them to VPN back to corporate and then filter their traffic on the way out. And that obviously does scale and makes the burden for the administrators harder and harder. So the cloud security solution should be doing that filtering in the cloud. And while we're at it, let's make sure if they download something that we can sandbox it Detonate it, make sure it's not malicious. Um, let's uh, do all the antivirus checks on it. We can do uh, uh, data leak prevention checks uh, on it, uh, outward bound, make sure people aren't uploading documents that have social security numbers in them. Do all that in a distributed cloud service, you know, a 
something that's almost like a reverse Akamai. So it's a reverse proxy. And it's checking all the all the data as it goes to any user, any device, any location. So that's half the battle. But the other question is, okay, but we've got all these applications of ours out there. How do we uh, allow our users, our customers, um, partners, securely get access to uh, to these applications? It's kind of the other other side of the equation. Uh, in the old days, that was your DMZ inside your data center. You had VPN uh, uh, connectors. You had uh, load balancers because the applications would have to be on multiple servers. Uh, do that in the cloud as well. You don't have to do as much of the security things. The most important thing is uh, authentication and authorization. And that ties back to how you're doing Active Directory. Mm. You know, if you're still hosting it internally, you're going to ask everybody in the world to first get find their way to your Active Directory server. And that's why I'm seeing such a shift to uh, um, a, uh, Azure AD, mm -hmm. uh, because it might as well be hosted close to my email server where people are authenticating every day. Now, a lot of this, uh, a lot of security functions historically used to be performed by on-premise uh, security uh, solutions or, or you know, on-premise software. And of course, as you've, have you seen more and more of a move to uh, software as a service now more, you know, more, more of a virtual network infrastructure, there's a, you know, there's, there's a growing, growing interest in, uh, certainly in, in more, you know, security as a service, hosted security as a service. And we'd love to get your take on, you know, the, the evolution of the market. If, as you go back to, uh, the days of the MSSPs, the argument that you could, you know, you would have these, uh, I'd say, you know, economies or, you know, intellectual economies of scale where you, you would have expertise that could be, uh, you know, levered out, but benefiting from seeing a lot of traffic um, to the, you know, to the, to the flip side of this, which is that, uh, you know, that um, historically, you know, spam, anti-spam or antivirus or certain types of security would, would, uh, would be outsourced, but there'd be other types of security, whether it be identity and access management, uh, or even data management, which would be, uh, you know, historically much more, uh, more of an on-premise uh, type of uh, on-premise preference. And yeah, how have you seen the the industry evolving to uh, to more of a, I would say, a, a virtual model in security? And and are there, uh, you know, are there some notable lessons or changes that you've observed along the way? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say it's an evolution. I'm afraid it's going to be a disruption. In other words, the legacy players are going to fall behind. Um, you know, the, the way, in my mind, the way, and I'm, I'm kind of an iconoclast when it comes to MSSPs, um, because they evolved out of this requirement to log all alerts. And, and if you go through the ISO certification process, you can't just log them. you got to look at them and do something with the alerts. So, um, but you get, you know, hundreds of thousands of alerts a day. And even the best uh, security information event management system will winnow that down to 2,000 alerts. But nobody's got a staff big enough to go through and do the forensics and figure out what happened with 2,000 alerts. So what people tended to do was, okay, there's a regulatory requirement or a compliance requirement at any rate to uh, keep these logs in and look at them. And so they just outsourced that. So it made it easy for uh, the secure works of the world to say, okay, how many devices do you have? Okay, we're gonna monitor all your firewalls, all your IDS, um, you know, maybe your email exchange server, and we're gonna grab all the alerts and we'll tell you if you've got a problem, which is great, you know, but it's, it was very expensive on top of that. And as we enter this world of, of uh, you know, threat hunting and um, you know, breach detection, they didn't have enough information from their logs to actually tell you what was going on. And they didn't have the technology or sophisticated uh, analysts to do that. So it, what excites me about the new world is, you know what, I'm going to outsource all my filtering. You know, everything I did in the data center with that stack of products, 
and outsource it to uh, you know one vendor that you know handles everything the same way. They can still send my logs to wherever I want. They can keep them in region, you know, for various uh, country uh, privacy regulations. Um, and I'm going to uh, rely on them to do all the heavy lifting. So, and you know, it saves you a lot of money because now you don't get hit by WannaCry or not pet you because um, those don't just don't get through these systems. Um, and you start having, you know, lower demand on your internal people. So you can start repurposing what they're doing too. You know, everybody knows they have to build a reliable SOC and the ability to um, track down these breaches as they're occurring. Uh, so it gives you an opportunity to kind of refactor your team as well. You'll probably have less desktop support people because there aren't as many issues with viruses and worms. Um, you'll have less email uh, support people because Office, you know, Microsoft's doing all that for you. And maybe you layered in a proof point uh, for an additional layer of security on top of it. Um, so what are those people going to do? <laughs> and so this is a great opportunity to send them back to school or get them trained up and let them work on more exciting things than, than just a day-to-day uh, break-fix that they're doing. Mm, absolutely. I, I, I wanted to highlight that you've interviewed some uh, you know, some of the leading executives from uh, a whole broad range of companies, everything from traditional industrials to uh, you know, true, truly high-tech companies. And, and of course, having, a, uh, having an endorsement from Satya Nadella of Microsoft is is about as about as good a uh, a validation as you're going to get anywhere. But with lo- from your perspective, um, and in in the experience, can would, could you compare and contrast some of the uh, some of the lessons and insights that uh, that you got from say uh, let's let's I mean I I could I don't want to do, take for example, but I mean you did an interview GE, you entered Schneider, interviewed Schneider and Siemens and. Companies like that that are that you'd think of as traditional, uh, that that are really where their business is, is industrial uh, capital equipment, um, and then some companies that are much more say digital native. I mean, how what are some of the challenges that that may that may be faced by the traditional industrial companies, and and are there lessons that uh, that that they have learned that are relevant for either smaller companies are also companies that are that are in other businesses that maybe consider themselves more you know advanced in in terms of technology yeah you know they're they're it was really diverse so everybody had um, different ways into it on their journey to the cloud um, I liked that they all had things to share on how to um, how to get the team on board um, and one company said, you know, it wasn't an issue with upper management to get them on board. It was an issue with my staff. You know, the guys who were running the servers didn't want to move them into the cloud as a new skill set they'd have to pick up. Um, or the network guys who manage these MPLS networks. So there was more resistance from below than from above. Uh, quite often, um, they would just be handed the responsibility. It was, hey, You've been talking about doing all this stuff better. Uh, it's up to you to figure out a way to do it better now. And off they'd go. There were some uh, interesting lessons learned from uh, a, a company you may not have heard of, National Oil Well Varco. So they're kind of, a, in my mind, they're a smaller schlumberger, right? So they make oil well uh, equipment. So their industry is, you know, tied exactly, you know, their success of their industry is tied directly to the price of oil. And in 2008, when we saw oil prices crash, um, they, you know, the industry basically became unprofitable, um, and people weren't drilling wells. So uh, NOV National Oil Alvarco had to go through a major cost cut. So they were laying people off, and the CIO was told, you know, you got to cut costs. So he cut costs by moving to the cloud. Uh, Office 365 being one of them. And an interesting reaction from his end users, they all, the scuttlebutt inside the company was that IT was spending like mad because everybody had all these new features and capabilities they never had before. And yet it was a cost-cutting measure that got them to where they were. And then the other cool one 
uh, was from Tony Ferguson over at Man Energy Solutions or Man Diesel. Um, and uh, as I talked to him, I realized that he was talking about industrial equipment. This was an IoT solution that they're coming across. They have, I think, over 3,000 diesel engines on big uh, cargo ships uh, that are at sea all the time. And in the old days, when they needed to check the sensors and flows and temperatures and all that, um, one of the diesel engines, because they're you know, providing maintenance for it, they would call the ship on a sat phone, ask the person to plug the sat phone into you know, the, the network uh, on the ship and download all the data they needed. That was the only way they could do it securely. But when they figured out this, that uh, the cloud gave them an ability to, to do essentially uh, what's called zero trust networking. So they can leave the uh, systems on the ship connected to the internet all the time, but they would only, uh, those systems would only be known to this cloud broker, this proxy. And when somebody wanted to log in, you know, they'd put in the address of the, or the name of the ship. They'd say, I want to you know, look at what's going on there real time. Um, the cloud proxy would make that connection. So you couldn't be a Russian hacker scanning the IP address range for these ships. They're just they're completely stealth from the rest of the world. Very similar to what um, what people used to do with modems on these kinds of devices on uh, oil rigs. They would uh, have a, a call home feature. So you, you could you know you could war dial the phone numbers and and hit that particular modem on a particular control device, but it would hang up and call back home. So it would only be able to make connections initiated by the remote site back to the home office. And that's exactly what we're seeing replicated with uh, zero trust networking in the cloud. So one kind of a final area that I wanted to explore is this, you know, the, the growing role of the, uh, the CIO and you, uh, uh, you've got some uh, some interesting examples about this. Uh, you know, we've seen how it it has you know has really become a you know a really critical strategic role within within the company uh, to think not just about the technology but also uh, the value of of data and also the business model. Could um, share some of the some of what you learned about the 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 transformation in the the what we've considered traditional roles in the uh, in the CIO or CTO and any relevant lessons that you found that uh, you know that really stuck with you. Yeah, I think the the role is changing into one of a, a visionary and a business leader as opposed to you know here's 150 projects that have got to get done and here's your budget for it. Um, and that to me is the most dramatic change uh, because they, you know, there's this overarching umbrella of the direction we're taking our technology, uh, which is moving it to the cloud. And then the things that cascade out of that with the cost savings, the user enhancement, and then the enhanced capabilities that they never had before. Um, a couple of CIOs I talked to recognized that they were just in the dark ages and you know, like a major insurance company uh, in the Canada and the U.S. realized that, you know, they they need younger customers ultimately for their insurance policies. And those cust younger customers expected a lot more digitally from uh, somebody that provided them with a service. So they used to, you know, leading edge bank uh, applications. And so they realized they had to get there somehow. And so they incorporated that move to a more customer-facing uh, technology than they used to have through cloud transformation. So looking forward, as as you um, uh, you know, as you, as you assess the, uh, the you know the lessons that you've learned, are there any? Uh, are there any emerging threats or considerations that uh, um, and that have, that are uh, top of mind for you? I would say just having come back from recently from RSA, and uh, yeah, what are you most optimistic about after uh, after doing this this kind of deep survey of of uh, of all these all these thought leaders? 
Well, two things. As a industry analyst, I want to always think of you know what's the impact on the industry, the security industry in particular. Um, and to me, that means you know uh, maybe a third of the IT security industry is devoted to firewall appliances. Um, and even though I'm not going to be the one that says the firewall is dead, um, I think the traditional appliance market is mm. uh, seeing the end. <laughs> the end is nigh. Mm-hmm. And some of them, you know, uh, Juniper, Cisco, Fortinet, are well positioned to uh, pivot into being a software-defined networking company, right? They, you still need equipment to connect to the network, um, so they could provide that function. Um, but but some of them that are just hardware, you know, are, are going to be challenged quite a bit. And I'm waiting. You know, if you look at the the numbers, I'm sure you still do. And um, if you look at the quarterly results from these players, they're all doing extremely well, growing 24 to 34 uh, percent year over year. Uh, so it obviously isn't hitting their their top line yet, but I, I'm just looking for signs of that. And the optimistic side, I am so optimistic that I, that we've got this licked now. You know, it's we've we've lived through 25 years of uh, the vulnerabilities introduced to our operations by a protocol that was never intended to to be secure, and that's TCP/IP. Um, we've had a you know a digital transformation for the entire economy as we all hooked up to the internet, and then we had the growth of the security industry as try to patch all the holes with all the different products in 80 different categories and uh, probably 2,400 different vendors with each one of multiple products. Um, but now with a, uh, with the zero trust networking that's coming in, we're going to raise the cost for the attackers dramatically. And we're going to start, you know, start with, you know, the loss of revenue for the cyber criminals, um, the, the hacktivists that want to deface websites, the jobs is going to get more and more technical and like basically won't be able to afford to do it anymore. Um, so we'll be down to just nation state hackers. Um, and that's, you know, that'll keep us going with threat vectors for quite a while because the nation state attackers have relatively infinite uh, resources available to them. But I, I think today we're finally seeing solutions out there that could protect a large organization from even a nation state hacker. Well, that's a, I, and that's a that's a big change from where we were even just a few years ago. I think uh, yep. you and I have have we talk periodically about the, uh, the the changing nature of threats from really from uh, digital graffito artists to <laughs> to organized yeah. crime to the uh, IEP the rise of IP theft in nation states, and uh, certainly there's there's obviously plenty of threats to keep the uh, the industry in in a healthy state but it as a dynamic it's uh, absolutely you know essential that we you know that we that we manage the risks if we're gonna if we're gonna drive value out of the rest of the economy through adoption of digital technologies so it's uh, it is yeah you know if you just look at the growth curves and we know that the digital economy is gonna skyrocket and this time three years from now will be twice as big um you know the amount of data will be twice as much and the amount of bandwidth usage will be twice as much twice as much and we think we've got the infrastructure resources to handle that um can we protect it without doubling the size of the security industry is the question yeah well the last question i have for you rich is just uh, some uh, quick observations. Uh, you've just had a, a very successful book, book launch at uh, at RSA. Um, could you just share any uh, you know any insights or observations that have that have come from uh, from initial feedback on on the book, and and also just share a bit about some of your uh, you've you've written three prior books as well, and uh, whether uh, highlight if there there are any any of those others that that you'd like us to uh, to recommend as well in the in the podcast notes. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I've written uh, two books on cyber warfare. One was kind of a history of attacks, and I'm in the process of writing the second edition of what's called Surviving Cyber War. 
So that'll be out later this year. And then, uh, you know, I had gone back to school to learn more about warfare if I was going to write about it. So I took my master's dissertation at King's College and turned it into my last book before this one, which was uh, There Will Be Cyber War. And that's that's all from a military perspective. And a better title might have been The, the Internet of Military Things. Um, and then uh, in between there, I wrote uh, a book on how IT technology vendors can deal with Gartner because I've got experience on both sides of that equation. So, uh, but this book at RSA this year is, is so elated because the the reaction was so positive, right? I hit uh, the timing just right. Um, there's no other book that uh, covers from, uh, cloud transformation from this perspective. It's certainly no other book that, you know, interviews so many pioneers in the, in the space. Um, so I did, you know, three book signings. Um, the book was sold out of our say bookstore. Um, at the book signings, we gave away um, 360 copies, and people were coming up. We had, you know, kind of announced at the Cloud Security Alliance Congress on the first day. We announced that I'd be handing these books out at book signings. People were coming up and asking for two: one for themselves and one for their CIO. That was the best thing that came out of that show, uh, knowing that you know, people got the message right away and this was a book that they hand off to their CIO and get them to understand what was happening in the cloud. Now it's, it's, uh, it's terrific. And, and really, a, uh, it's, it's so encouraging and, and, uh, good, good to see that, you know, the, all, all the work and the experience that you bring to the, uh, bring to the fore and, and, you know, pour into your work is, is being recognized. And, uh, and with that, again, uh, Rich Steenan, uh, has been our guest. Uh, he is a, uh, the author of Secure Cloud Transformation, The CIO's Journey, Strategies and Best Practices for Building the Future. Uh, and he's also an experienced uh, entrepreneur and uh, industry analyst as well. And, and Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Momenta Partners Uncommon Perspectives podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions and we, as always, welcome your comments, input, and suggestions. Thank you for listening.